Hello, and welcome to Close Talking, the world's most popular poetry analysis podcast from Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated. I am co-host Connor McNamara Stratton, and with my good friend Jack Rossiter Munley, we read a poem, talk about the poem, and read the poem again. Before we get into today's selection, a quick note that if you like what we do here at Close Talking, and you have a spare minute, it would mean the world to us if you would give the podcast a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Those ratings and reviews help boost us up the algorithm and find new listeners. And if you have suggestions for future episodes or comments on this one, you can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. You can also find us on social media. On Twitter, the show is at Close Talking. I'm at Connor M. Stratton, and Jack is at Jack Rossiter Mudd. On Instagram, the show is at Close Talking, and on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash close talking. And our website, where you can find all our past episodes, is closetalking.com. On with the show. Hello, and welcome to an all-new episode of Close Talking. I am one of your co-hosts, Connor McNamara-Stratton. And I am your other co-host, Jack Rossiter-Munley. And as always, we have a marvelous poem for you today. This poem is called Snake White, Owl White. And it's by the poet Casey Etsidi, whose debut collection came out in 2018, which has along with Saeed Jones' Prelude to Bruce, one of my favorite names for a collection, Rain Scald, which I love. That's really good. Yeah. Um, and At City is just a bit of biography before we get into the poem. Um, she is Dine, or uh, Navajo, and she's appeared in a lot of the big journals, Poetry Magazine, Kenyan Review, and is a really wonderful poet. Yeah, I'm excited to, to sort of jump in. This one's a little, a bit harder in some ways, I think, as a forewarning. Yeah, but I think it's like incredibly beautiful and, and interesting. So let's hop to it. Snake White, Owl White by Tacey at City. When I say that my cheek fell, I mean the bone, the gliding pell sunken. I mean how it hides in rain in a skylit cell swelling. This is me fallen together, separated from her, that mistelling of female warrior who split in two, who pulled from her gut well a lumpy snake pale with a scaling tongue, word slit. I've heaved her pang, her yell at the snap of his tail. They drop like words at the end, a quell to the floodline of an uvula, a face, a cheek pouch, high like shell veins. Birds swim silver in the sky. An owl drops to dwell with me, gapes. It's death. I step back. I can't tell how he rises and dives at me, then turns flight just before my head. 
When I tell you this is where bone rises to white, I mean tomorrow, a minute later, dive well. This is one of those poems that I'm always excited when you pick because it leaves me with so many questions and I feel like I get a lot of benefit out of talking about it with you. I mean, I like, I feel that way generally about all of the poems, but there are certain ones that I can point to and feel like, Oh, wow. I did a lot of work on my own, but when we talked about it, that helped so much like put all of my thoughts in order or give me a lot of new thoughts. So I'm really excited to dive into this. Yeah, yeah, me too. I, I really feel the same way. And I also, this is one of those poems where I like read it and I'm like, I'm like, holy shit, basically, this is awesome. But I also don't quite, like on the first couple of reads, I'm still like, I don't quite know everything that's happening here. But I know that, uh, like, I love it. <laughs> yeah, so, I think the first few readings... I get a few big signposts and right. I then try to fill in around those with varying degrees of success. And like the big ones that I had initially, at least, which are super broad were <laughs> a lot of specific language about the natural world, like specifically named animals, uh, especially, which yeah. creates a certain scene for me which helps a little bit of just trying to place the speaker in space because that isn't really done a lot explicitly in the poem, but you do get a strong sense of maybe being in a field or being in a very natural environment and setting. And then also a lot of strong female and birth language, which are the two main things that I tried to then fit in around and and work my way into but that after the first couple of readings that was what i decided to just sit with those two big things for a while and try and and work with that yeah i love that yeah it's one of those poems where like so you can kind of try to do a play-by-play -play, which in the kind of i think failures to do so might be helpful in terms of like revealing what's unclear yeah, let's try um, that right now and see how far we get. Oh, look, it's the third line of the poem. No, I'm just <laughs> but, Yeah, I mean, yeah. Let, the let's word hell, P-E-L-L. I've looked it up and I'm not. And it's a I type of quite. grant that you can apply for if you're going to college. <laughs> I think so. Okay, with the word, uh, one meaning is like a roll of parchment, which I don't think is what it's meaning and another is it's kind of like an archaic word for pelt or something which felt more in line with what was kind of being talked about but you know our first line it's like when i say that my cheek fell okay the cheek is falling what do you know and then there's the speakers trying to describe something i mean the bone the gliding pell sunken and then like, I mean how it hides in rain in the skylit cell swelling. In a way, yeah, we're sort of talking about the cheek, the speaker's cheek, and describing it in various ways. And it, but again, it's sort of difficult to like exactly literally piece together what's being described. Because um, you get those 
contradictions. Is it sunken or is it swelling? And right. I was thinking sort of like the death and decay process where you do get both of those happening over time. And especially with rain, it can cause like corpse bloating over time. But even then, it's pretty unclear because they're almost in reverse order. First it would swell, then it would sink. But here it's a sunken pell and then it hides in rain and the skylet cell swelling. So I'm like temporally confused. I'm I'm like, I'm way out there. Yeah. Yeah. And like skylet cell is almost like you're outside, but the whole outside is a cell, like a prison cell, which is not quite a contradiction, but is sort of like to think of the outside as a constrictive place is, is like counterintuitive, I think. If it's the cheekbone, then the skylet swell cell would be the swelling like flesh on it, I guess. That, yeah, that's what that's where I went with it. Because I was also I like all of this was wrapped up in me trying to figure out how this related to death. Because I know that owls that that was the other thing that I sort of latched onto. So there's natural world, there's like a lot of female imagery, and then death imagery because owls are often related to uh death, basically. They're they're in many different cultures, they're considered either death omens or their call is a harbinger of death. Like there's a lot of, of that in, in owls, both in native tribes in the Americas and in like other cultures around the world. And we see that specifically in this poem too, where an owl toward the end, an owl drops to dwell with me, gapes, and then it's in italics, it's death. Right. So it's it, it literally a, tells you. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that was, anyway, as I was going back over the poem, that was where I was trying to figure out like how do these pieces and right. not that it has to be like a puzzle piece, <laughs> quote unquote, solving the poem. Like we've talked about that quite a few times, but trying to, you know, find different ways to unlock meaning is a different exercise than trying to puzzle piece together a specific reading. Right. And so in terms of what I was doing as a, you know, unmoored reader, <laughs> um, joyously unmoored, obviously, like I was enjoying that feeling. <laughs> that was something else that I was trying to sort of bring back from the end of the poem into the beginning as I read it a couple more times. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. Joyously unmoored reader. It's like, there's that quote in that movie waking life or something where that guy's like, I go salsa dancing with my confusion. Sounds like a good time. Yeah. It seemed fun when he said it anyway, at any rate. So we have that sort of the first four lines with the skylight cell swelling then it's like, this is me fallen together, separated from her, which is in italics. Uh, that mistelling of female warrior who split in two. And like female warrior who split in two is kind of like every word is capitalized. Um, so it sort of evokes a kind of like, kind of like archetypal name of something someone or something like that. Then the poem sort of describes this female warrior, basically, who like pulls a snake out of her gut or her gut well, which is a great like um, combo of words um, that in your, in your gut, you have this, this well. Uh, <laughs> And in this particular gut, well, there's a lumpy snake. 
yeah, but there's like this kind of interesting, sort of unclear relationship between the speaker, the eye of the poem, and then this, the female warrior who split in two. In a way, it's like there's that division. So it's like kind of like there's the eye and the her, and like the speaker is then heaving like her pang. So it's like, okay. And then you have this snake you know, that's kind of like coming alive and has this relationship to language that's like interesting words slipped and like, you know, they drop like words at the end. And then we kind of return to the face in this way. They drop like words at the end, a quell to the floodline of an uvula, which is a very difficult word for me to say, which is like, like a part of the throat and it, we sort of return to the head and, you know, uvula, a face, a cheek pouch, and we get back to the cheek. Then there's kind of like birds swim silver in the sky and owl drops to dwell with me. So we've had this kind of intense moment with this like snake and the speaker and the speaker's body and face. And then we kind of, move our camera back outward and we get our birds which are swimming and it's kind of like that rain skylit cell like it's you know like there's this weird inversion of like it's the sky but they're swimming in the sky and then this owl comes down who as you've you've like sort of already articulated is like this omen of death and then the owl kind of like surprises the speaker speaker steps back and then the owl makes this weird kind of rises and then dives at the speaker and then turns basically just before hitting. So it's sort of like this figurative near death experience in a way, right? Where the right. owl like is like, I could get you, but I'm not going to. Um, and that is and something then, that owls yeah. also do. I mean, they will like dive at people, sometimes hitting them, but oftentimes just to sort of spook larger beings out of their territory, they will kind of dive bomb. Uh, it happened. There was an owl that hung out outside of my dorm in college for a couple of weeks and everybody had to like wear bright hats and keep an eye out for the owl by how Oh my gosh. <laughs> Interesting. Um, the Yeah, and then the poem ends like when I tell you kind of, you know, in the in the more figurative abstract, like this is where bone rises to white. I mean tomorrow, a minute later, dive well. So going through that wasn't like, um, may not be particularly helpful in terms of like crafting a narrative, but kind of like what you were saying in terms of like the big things that you're grasping onto. Something we talk about sometimes is like, I feel like our default thing that people, readers and audience members like often look for is like the narrative continuity of something, right? And so um, like, where's the story? Um, which is often kind of like why poetry has a difficult rep because it's one of the forms that like most often kind of evades easy stories, uh, even though many poems have narrative elements as, you know, central parts of them. But then it's like, okay, there's actually lots of different 
things happening in the poem, dimensions to the poem, like features, formal features, like thematic features, imagistic features. There's all these just kind of like things that are happening. And like when I am a joyously unmoored reader and I can't like quite put my finger on the clear story or like something immediately like accessible, I'm like, okay, what are other like patterns or things that seem to be like recurring uh, or central to it in some way and like see not as necessarily like putting the pieces to the puzzle, but just like the poem still trying to anchor me. And I, the reason why I love these kinds of poems is that when I read it, I do feel anchored. Like I don't feel like the poem is trying to just like, you know, be like, ha understand this. <laughs> Bet you can't. <laughs> hey, try this um, on for size. Yeah. <laughs> No, that's, um, that's something that I think is a really important point. And I think you feel that even those first times you read this poem is that there is a real drive to it. It feels like it's getting at something as you're reading it. Even if you aren't sure all the time what it is, you do get that strong sense that it's going somewhere and that it's doing something. And yeah. I personally, as a reader, really respond to that. And that, you know, not again, not quite in like a puzzle solving type way, but it does get me like analytically attuned and interested in figuring out like what I what are we getting at here even if i'm not searching for a definitive answer i'm searching for where that drive is coming from in the poem and i don't know if there's something similar to that that you were sort of picking up on or something that you think it was driving at i know kind of where i landed with that yeah there were kind of a few things that sort of stuck out to me one is kind of like the bodily part like the body parts sort of coming up again you know the cheek the bone in the beginning then the like the gut well and then how the the kind of face and cheek pouch like returns in the middle of the poem and then like the end of the poem is like when I tell you this is where bone rises to white I'm like okay I don't quite know what it means to rise to white necessarily but the bone is, there's something about bones that are very important in this poem. And that's like come up again. And also just like the face and the, the kind of like the, almost the skull in a sense um, with the cheek. And then there's like this kind of, as you sort of noted that the animals are like really key and there's like, and the title helps us out a little bit. It's like snake white, owl white, which also is like, okay, bone white, when the bone rises to white, and like the snake, when the snake gets pulled out, it's pale with a scaling tongue. So it's like a white snake. And we could imagine that the owl is also maybe a white owl. Then we have like, there's like two other big things. One is like this idea of division or like splitting. So the, the biggest thing is like the, the female warrior who split in two. So there's like this clear, like this archetypal character, like it's unclear if this female warrior comes from any like particular story or if it's just something that the speaker has sort of like come up with, but the warrior has split in two. And then we have like the snake and like the word slit tongue. So there's the slit word 
you know, um, and you think I was picturing that the kind of classic snake tongue that's like split kind of thing. It's like not necessarily like for the whole thing, but somehow this division and like the dividing process feels important. And then the last part is like, where actually I realized my true anchor was in the poem, um, but it's also, which partly is like speaks to who I am as a reader, but um, which is just like the sounds and the rhythm of the poem. Cause this poem is like killing it on the sounds. Big time. Um, and it, with the rhythm, they drop yeah. like words at the end of quell. Like there are some very percussive parts of the poem i it took me a couple of times through it to begin noticing that but once i did i was really struck by it yeah and there's this one there's a lot of i mean the 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 poem is sort of doing a lot of things with its rhythm and its sound but there's one sort of like big formal feature that's happening in this whole poem which is basically that like so the poem is made up of couplets which wouldn't necessarily know from just listening to it, but for the most part, at the end of the last line of every couplet, there's like an L sound. So except for the first one, which still has it in these different ways. So it's like, when I say that my cheek fell, I mean the bone, the gliding pell sunken. And pell comes in at the beginning of the second stanza, but we have fell and then we have pell. But then we have, I mean, how it hides in rain in a skylit cell swelling. Um, that's the end of one stanza. Then we have like separated from her, that mistelling with the tell. Gut well, her yell, uck well, high like shell, drops to dwell. I can't tell when I tell you dive well. And oftentimes the they're jammed very extremely and so which i think is is a good because it's like the same kind of rhyme sound for the whole poem like it hides the sort of form a little bit that you know it's like an owl drops to dwell with me you know i can't tell how he rises and dives at me or like that mistelling of female warrior who split in two like these sort of in the sentence sort of part of it they're not like super emphasized so they they have their rhymes are hidden in that kind of way but then over time it's like this it's happening over and over again and the, and there's like also just i don't know there's a lot of other like wool like the l's just generally are kind of like everywhere um like sky lit cell this is me fallen together, female warrior who split in two, who pulled from her gut well, a lumpy snake, which is just, who pulled from her gut well, such a great line with the us and then the L and then pale with a scaling tongue, which is a similar kind of like the L sound to pale and scaling, but a similar kind of vowel, like a, like pale with a scaling. And then, you know, like snap of his tail, a quell to the flood line of a uvula. Uh, like uvula is like, <laughs> mm -hmm. 
So um, it's a, that moment and then the, the word Pell, because it's like a word that dictionary.com doesn't have an entry for, are like moments where when I'm like really like getting into it, I'm like, okay, these are clearly like the sounds are, dr are a driving force here, even beyond like the sense where like it's maybe not even like a word that anyone uses is Pell, but the gliding Pell sunken, you know, when I say that my cheek fell, I mean the bone, the gliding Pell sunken, like is, sounds great. <laughs> it sounds incredible. Um, and then, so there, like there's that whole everything, <laughs> which is like the whole poem, but the sounds of it. And like, especially with that sort of pretty, almost strict, it's not like a rhyme scheme, but it kind of is a bit of a scheme where the end of the second stanza is like the same, like L sound. And this is like where I was like when we started talking about it, like before where I was like, okay, we, I've got these sounds and I can, I could be like, it's so intentional and it sounds so good. And then I could also be like, animals are important. There's like a lot of twos and splitting and that's really important. And there's like the face and the cheek and that's really important and death. And there's this kind of threat of violence, but then like how the two go together, which I think that they do in some way that's not, you know, and what's always tricky is like, it's not that like the sounds mean anything specifically but they create something and they have a propulsive sort of effect that there is a relationship between the kind of like quote unquote content and the quote unquote form. And yeah, I'm like still kind of thinking through that relationship. Definitely. And I think that's a really good point that you can sort of notice one of these big things and at a certain point, check yourself and realize like, okay, so that's not really an insight that necessarily gets me any farther than noticing something in the poem, as you were saying about the sounds, but also definitely something that I started paying a lot of attention to is the, like the splitting and the two, and then noticing all of the couplets are also two lines. And it makes, it means that the poem itself is very split up. Um, and like, is duality important? Uh, but again, at a certain level, that's just kind of noticing something that's in the poem. That's not leading to any, you know, I'm not finding more meaning in it necessarily just because I noticed something like that. Um, and so my next challenge or the next move was like, okay, so like, <laughs> what does it mean that there's all of these twos and dualities in the poem? And where I started going with it is first noticing all of them. And then also I decided to put contradictions in as well. So as I mentioned, there's the very beginning when I say that my cheek fell, I mean the bone, the gliding pell sunken. I mean how it hides in rain in a skylit cell swelling. Like there aren't just twos and there aren't just splits. There's also these dualities. In fact, even the title snake white, owl white is two different whites and in some ways you could even see them as very opposed because a snake 
is pretty much as ground laden as you can get and an owl is a creature of the air and so trying to think through all of that it led me to this general reading of the poem that's not narrative in any way but is looking at the whole thing as this sort of examination of a natural life cycle of birth and death and then through decomposition eventual like a form of rebirth and part of what got me there is looking towards the end of the poem because there's all this talk about cheeks and cheekbones and stuff and then there's this very specific uh, mention right before the owl is introduced a cheek pouch high like shell veins birds swim silver in the sky but the mention of a cheek pouch specifically put me in mind of certain prey animals which do actually have cheek pouches where they like store seeds and nuts and things and would be the prey for exactly the owl that shows up and so whether that's literal or not it does inject not just the owl's kind of general death symbolism but the very real interaction that happens between a small rodent and an owl and so looking at this whole poem as different avenues into that kind of natural i don't know not necessarily system but looking at the the natural life and death if the hunter doesn't eat the hunter starves and the hunter shrinks but if the hunter is successful in its kill not only does it kill the prey animal, but that prey animal will then decay and shrink. And there are all of these uh, like elements of that process that end up embodying a lot of these contradictory or seemingly contradictory pieces within the poem. And that was like the next step that I tried to make from noticing some of those things in the poem that I think for me at least were feeling like realizations. And then at some point I was like, wait a minute. All I did was notice something that's like all over the poem, sort of like at the beginning of the poem, you're thinking like, yeah, okay. So owls in the title, like death or whatever. And then you get to the end and it's like an owl drops to dwell with me gapes. It's death. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I guess that wasn't as much of an insight as I thought it was. <laughs> you told me that it is the death owl. Um, but I really liked that about this poem. Cause I feel like in some ways it gave you a lot of like breadcrumb trails to follow. And then, where do you go? Sort of as you were saying, especially with the sounds, where does that take you? Where do you go with that? And like, I think what you said was spot on. The sounds are a lot of what give it the propulsion in the poem. That's like the formal propulsion that you feel in it. And I think that that's such a valuable insight, but it's easy to stop and be like, oh, I've noticed that even though they're kind of hidden in there, the last word in each of these uh couplets rhymes dwell tell shell <laughs> you know yeah yeah no i love all of that i think that's really right and i think the contradictions aspect of it is really important and like also my two other thoughts that hopefully will come together another way to think about a poem is like an event or like an encounter itself. So rather than sort of like a puzzle document, which is how it's often talked about, which we've been talking about before, or like a kind of static thing, we could think of it as like a happening in itself. Like it's just a thing that occurs through time. Then I'm like, okay, 
rather than it being like a thing, like a kind of monument or a statue, if it's like a happening or an event, there's this speaker who's kind of before me, who's like having this experience. And there's this speaker who's kind of, and this is kind of like the other part that I've, that I noticed, which is like sort of a kind of just a kind of repetition. But there's this other part where there's like the when I say, which is how the poem starts, when I say that my cheek fell, I mean the bone. And so there's this kind of like when I say phrase, and then I mean phrase that kind of recur in different times in the poem. So like, when I say that my cheek fell, I mean the bone, the gliding pell sunken. I mean how it hides in rain in a skylit cell swelling. Then it kind of drops off for a while. But then at the end, right after the speaker like steps back from the death owl, I can't tell how he rises and dives at me, then turns flight just before my head. When I tell you, this is where bone rises to white. I mean, tomorrow, a minute later, dive well. So there's this interesting kind of, I mean, kind of like happens two times quickly in the beginning, and then it comes back way at the end. And then the when I say happens once at the beginning and then comes back quickly twice at the end, but it changes the when I say changes each time a little bit. So it starts as when I say, then it goes to I can't tell, and then it goes when I tell you. Then when I was thinking about it as an encounter, and that also like an event, and then also there's all these contradictions, and especially like this moment, which is so, in some ways so direct, but like also like the most sort of abstract, like this is me fallen together separated from her and then it's like that mistelling of female warrior who split in two like the speaker is like divided herself in this contradictory way where it's like there's a there's a snake self and a owl self or there's a there's one part of the female warrior and the other part there's the i and the her and like at the same time, it's like still one person. And it's like this, this one person that contains two that are not happy with each other or something. Or not, not happiness has nothing to do with it, but they're at odds with each other in this kind of way, in this like irreconcilable way. And like, in a way that's sort of also like a similarly difficult, like if that's how it feels like to be me, like, I can't tell you about it in a tidy way. You know, I can't tell you a, a, a straightforward narrative story, uh, even a complicated one, you know, because it's just like the very sense of self that would be needed to be like the protagonist or whatever is like not stable enough or something like that. And so then I was like, that's why I feel like the, the saying and the meaning and the like telling comes up again because it's also like the difficulty of like trying. It's like the speaker's like tr 
trying to say this thing over and over again in a way, but is like not able to do so. But then at the same time, they're like, the sounds are like so uniformly, not uniform, but like very sensual and like together, you know, it's like, and rhythmic through the whole way, like, and it's like a similar texture of sounds for the whole poem, which provides this kind of like cohesion amid this contradictory identity, I guess. I don't know. I just started thinking about it as like, okay, it's not like I have to understand the poem, like what it means, but like I have to encounter the like happening. It's like I have to like witness the monologue, like experience and encounter like that in a full way, which has meaning, but isn't meaning. And that's all, I guess. My last kind of I don't really understand the ending, but I like it. But it, it's time also is sort of like happening in a weird way where like when I tell you this is where bone rises to white, I mean tomorrow, a minute later, dive well. It's like time moves really fast in the last line where like at the beginning of the line, it's like whatever's going to happen will happen tomorrow. But then tomorrow's like happened basically by the second clause and it's like okay it'll happen in a minute and then like by the end it's like bon voyage like dive well i guess um so it's like already it's like it's like a day is sort of passed in the last line alone which is like really jarring in an interesting way it also and goes from being when I tell you this is where bone rises to white, so there's a place, and then the place turns into a time, which is then obliterated. <laughs> yeah. And also at the end, there's this directive going on, when I tell you, which ends dive well. So am I as the reader being addressed? And if I'm being told to dive well, the only thing I've seen dive in this poem is the owl of death. Am I death? what's that going to mean for me and for this poem? Like the poem's coming to an end. So in a way that's a certain kind of ending, which could be death-like. So am I diving well in being a reader ending the poem in one sense, but also what does it mean that I'm being directed to dive? Well, did we see this owl who almost strikes the speaker? Did that owl dive well or unwell? Was that, <laughs> The yeah. good dive is the dive that misses just a little bit that gives you the taste of eternity and then slips away or uh, like what, what is, what is happening with this dive and who am I now? Am I the owl of death or am I just reading this? <laughs> that is a very good question. Um, should we um, read it again? I think we should do it again. All right. Snake White, Owl White by Tacey at City. When I say that my cheek fell, I mean the bone, the gliding pell sunken. I mean how it hides in rain in a skylit cell swelling. This is me fallen together, separated from her, that mistelling of female warrior who split in two 
who pulled from her gut well a lumpy snake, pale with a scaling tongue, word slip. I heaved her pang, her yell at the snap of his tail. They drop like words at the end, a quell to the flood line of an uvula, a face, a cheek pouch, high like shell veins. Birds swim silver in the sky. An owl drops to dwell with me, gapes. It's death. I step back. I can't tell how he rises and dives at me, then turns flight just before my head. When I tell you this is where bone rises to white, I mean tomorrow, a minute later, dive well. So we have been doing a quick end piece where we talk about some of the different things, not just poems that we have been reading or watching or thinking about. And so I want to kick it off this week. Connor, what have you been up to? (laughs) Oh man, Jack. Well, okay. First thing that I have been very into is a Twitter account that I just discovered called Ruth Wilson Gilmore Girls. So good. It's the best. It's a classic, great Twitter account that features poignant moments from the hit drama Gilmore Girls, and then quotes from the legendary prison abolitionist, Ruth Wilson Gilmore. So there's some good ones where Lorelai is uh, looking very stern at some kind of man. And then the quote that Lorelai is definitely saying herself is, at the core of the contemporary abolition movement is the combination of organized violence and organized abandonment that has produced so much vulnerability that we see in every single country where inequality is growing and is deepest. Mass incarceration is the most prevalent. And then there's another one (laughs) where Rory is like, come on, that's like the face she's giving. And the quote is, identity is not in and of itself consciousness. Boom. Boom. Amazing. Get him, Rory. Get him, Rory. I believe that uh, Lorelai is lecturing Rory's boyfriend, Jess, in the one that you mentioned. I think. Uh, I think that's the back of that head. I'm not positive. That really seems right. But uh, Jack, what are you uh, you watching? What are you reading? What are you listening to? What are you doing? I've got a couple of great downers for you this week, Connor. Woo! Uh, Hit me! Heck yeah. So I recently received my copy of Reaganland, the latest in Rick Perlstein's series of books about the history of American conservatism. Think basically what Robert Caro is doing with the life of Lyndon Johnson, but for contemporary conservatism. Uh, And it covers 1976 to 1980. And as somebody who is pretty deeply committed to the idea that all of the problems of today are uh, readily apparent if you look at the 1970s, it is falling right in my historical sweet spot and everything about it is distressing and it's about a thousand pages long. So yet another hefty tome to to work my way through. (laughs) 
Uh, it was recently thieved from me because I left it on the dining room table, and my dad is now reading it, but he doesn't want to read it beginning to end because that seems like a bit much. So he's dipping into the chapters that look most interesting. <laughs> All right. So that that's sounds number one. Intense. Uh, and then for for viewing, since I needed a break from all that bleakness, I dipped my toe into the waters of the Netflix original The Devil All the Time, which is a searing drama starring some of your favorite superheroes like Spider-Man and Batman, uh, Tom oh. and Robert Pattinson. Different roles. They're not actually, it's, they're not playing those characters in this one. Oh. <laughs> uh, it would be kind of cool if they were. That would be wild. Like... This is a crazy title for a superhero <laughs> TV show. <laughs> no, no, no. It's it's a movie, and it is an adaptation of a novel that I haven't read that is about, like, generational and inherited trauma, basically, uh, and violence and stuff. And it takes place in Appalachia and West Virginia and in Ohio in the uh, the 50s and the 60s. And it is... Very good. A lot of interesting storytelling going on. It's willing to take time with characters. It's willing to have kind of tangential stuff. You can, as, as I was watching it, I didn't know it was based on a novel, but I suspected it was just because it very much doesn't fit the really clean construction of even artsier type uh, Oscar Beatty movies. It's very much novelistic in the way it's put together there is a central character who you kind of follow but it really does go off in other directions and you spend time with you know this random couple of serial killers for a while and all kinds of stuff uh, but it's really really good and it's interesting and the way that it goes after its subject matter is kind of unexpected so a couple of downers womp 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 that's all right it's uh Sign of the times. Sometimes you just gotta 